Hi there, welcome back to part two of vSphere 5.1. Yes, so good that we had a sequel uh, to part one, uh, just like they do in the Star Wars movies. Anyway, with me again is Cormac Hogan, and Cormac, I'd like to hand over you again, and we'll, let's drill down into the, the rest of the material that we've got on uh, what's new in storage. Thanks, Mike. So, picking up where we left off uh, in part one, we're now going to look at the uh, the next 5.1 storage enhancement, which is boot support for software FCOE. Now, this feature is very similar to the boot from software iSCSI feature, which we introduced you know, back in the 4.1 days. It essentially means that you can use the software FCOE adapter, which we introduced in vSphere 5.0, to boot from an FCOE LUN, boot your ESXi host from an FCOE LUN. So it means you don't need a dedicated FCOE adapter and it's a, a very useful feature, especially for those uh, diskless, diskless blade servers to allow them to boot from SAN. And it essentially works the same way as booting from software as SCSI, where you get into the open boot prom of your network interface card, and you just go and set up your parameters, um, basically what we call um, an FCOE firmware boot table or FCOE boot firmware parameter table, you just go in and add usual information like uh, what's my target worldwide name, is it on a particular VLAN, what's the LUN ID I'm going to boot off of, and so on. And once those are all saved in the option ROM of the NIC, next time through the um, boot process, it's going to pick up that configuration information and go ahead and do a boot from your FCUE LUN. So this is so, this is quite different from the kind of iSCSI um, software adapter, which you know just can get acceleration from onboard NICs that might have a TCO over IP offload engine, but could just work with ordinary network cards. The the Cef software FCOE requires a supported NIC to, to function and then also do this boot from FCOE LUN. Is that is that right? Yeah, it's it's just another option ROM that you have on the NIC, Mike. Um, You'd need a similar thing for iSCSI as well, um, but the majority, the vast majority of them do support that. Uh, with FCOE, it's relatively newer, so you do have to be careful that you select a NIC that is on our HCL and does have this option ROM for booting from FCOE. Okay. Yeah, but there's a number of them already out there on the market. Right, yeah. So moving on, the next thing I want to talk about is APD or all paths down enhancements. So we did some major enhancements in 5.0 to address the APD situation. And APD is essentially where um, if a device is disconnected from the host in an uncontrolled manner or has some sort of failure, um, you can end up with host D, the host D service or process hanging around uh, waiting for IO to come back, uh, which it never does. So in 5.0, we introduced PDL, or Permanent Device Loss, and this was a way which um, we could actually query the SCSI, SCSI sense codes coming back from the target and go, hey, you know this device that we were hanging around waiting for I.O. to come back from? Well, it's never going to come back. So we just fast fail those I.O.s when that occurs. Now on 5.1, uh, we're trying to address even more complex or transient APD conditions. So this is in a situation where, um, you know, we, we get SCSI sense codes back, but they're not enough to tell us that this device has permanently gone away. So what happens now is that once a device goes into APD state, 
after a certain amount of um, after a timing timeout value, we will enter that device into a PDL state, and we will start fast failing the IOs um, once the device enters the PDL state. So essentially, it should mean that the APD issues that we saw in the past, where you know host D worker threads get tied up waiting for IOs to come back from a particular device. And after a period of time and after so many hosty worker threads get tied up waiting for that, uh, that feedback, we get ESXi hosts disconnecting from vCenter, which isn't very nice. So this will hopefully alleviate uh, that, that horrible situation from occurring in the future. So what, I mean, what are the common reasons that people get an owl pass down state? I mean, it's obviously a, it's not a problem with ESX. It's a problem with their, at the back end storage in, in a lot of cases, but what sort of scenarios does this sort of situation uh, expose itself? So to somebody, uh, so storage admin could inadvertently unpresent a, um, a, a disk from your ESXi host. Uh, you know, so you have your VMFS volume, you have your running virtual machines. The, the underlying data store is suddenly disconnected. And so you as a vSphere admin may not know what has happened at the storage backend. And so what's the first thing you do? Well, I'll just rescan the SAN and see if that addresses it, right? Mm. So that, that launches your host worker trades to go, okay, let's go and check all our devices. And so as it starts coming across these devices, which vSphere or the ESXi host knows about, but they no longer exist out on the fabric, it's just going to sit there and wait. And so after the rescan comes back, you might go, oh, maybe I'll just give it another rescan just in case. I know I would. And so that's another bunch of hosty worker threads that get tied up, uh, you know, waiting for a response from this device. And so as that happens over a period of time, all of hosty's worker threads get tied up waiting to get responses back from this device that's no longer there. And we don't have hosty worker threads to do any other tasks such as keeping your ESXi host connected to your vCenter. That's when, that's when things start to get uh, pretty bad. Mm. So now with this new timeout value, after 140 seconds by default, and it is tunable, we will just start fast failing those IOs, which means we don't tie up host the waiting around for responses anymore. So that's pretty neat. Sure. So the other thing as well is that, um, now this isn't necessarily a 5.1 enhancement but it was uh, i think it came out in 5.0 update 2 and it's a situation where when uh, a device enters an apd state and we have virtual machines on that device and we, uh, we we query it and we find that it's a pdl it's a permanent device loss well then we can get vsphere ha to restart those virtual machines on another host that hopefully does not have an APD state or a PDL state for that particular device. So it's basically vSphere HA detecting that, oh, I've got a device on PDL, I have a bunch of virtual machines on that device, I know what I'll do, I'll try and start those virtual machines on another host in the cluster and hopefully on a host that is not in a PDL state. In other words, it has access to the data store. Okay. And then finally, the, the last one was to do with uh, iSCSI arrays, which present one LUN for target. Now, these were pro problematic because if the LUN went away on these arrays, typically the target went away as well. So we had no way of querying PDL 
Um, you know, we, we use the SCSI sense codes from the target to do that query. And so um, what we've done now is that if we lose the session to a nice SCSI target or a nice SCSI LUN uh, on those arrays, we try and reestablish the iSCSI session. And depending on the type of responses we get back from establishing those sessions, then um, you know, we can determine whether it's a PDL or, or whatever. So those were the major enhancements that we made around that. Good. Okay. So the thing to talk to you about is the storage protocol enhancements that we've made. Now, we already mentioned FCOE, but there are a couple of others. The first one here is that we added a jumbo frame support for all our ISCSI adapters. So um, you know, there was a number of different adapters that did not support jumbo frames in the past, but in 5.1, we have them across the board. So we have different iSCSI adapters in vSphere. We obviously have our software iSCSI adapter. And then we have two different hardware adapters. There's the dependent and there's the independent hardware adapters. The dependent are the ones that come with their own driver, their own software, as well as the, the HBA itself. The independent ones, sorry, the, the dependent ones are the ones then that there's the physical hardware, but they use our uh, software to, uh, to do the iSCSI, uh, uh, you know, the driver and so on that, that we, we have in the VM kernel. So there's a, a subtle difference between the independent and dependent adapters. However, all of them now will support Jumbo frames in the 5.1 release. So, I mean, we've had uh, support for Jumbo frames for a while at the VM kernel, but there's been variances in, in places where you could use it. So are we moving towards a situation where uh, for all Ethernet communications, whether they're vMotion, storage, management, you, you could uh, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, um, you know, we've had it for, as you said, a, a a whole number of VM kernel interfaces. We've had it for virtual machine networks for some time now as well. But there was um, there was definitely some issues with some of the adapters not supporting it and then having the ability to actually set jumbo frames on those adapters through the, the vSphere UE. And so this is really just addressing all of that. Do you think, I mean, I've often said that probably increasing the MTU would have a bigger impact on IP storage than it would say for the virtual machine. Mm. Um, is that a fair thing to say because of the kind of traffic that you drive through storage layers is totally different from the sort of traffic that's generated within a VM? I, I think the other thing, Mike, um, is that the type of storage traffic that can be generated differs from array to array. Mm. And so know of um, you know some proof of concepts that you know turned on jumbo frames from end to end and they didn't see any noticeable improvement really mm. so I think it's all dependent on whether you can actually so it's great to turn it on but can you actually make use of it uh, with your you know your DIO profile that you're generating because I guess the other the other approach to ice because if you want to use it is rather than presenting LUNs to the ESX host you actually install an iSCSI driver or component into the guest OS and present storage directly to the virtual machine. Mm. Uh, I remember years and years ago when iSCSI uh, was just introduced in uh, ESX3, there were some cases where actually giving iSCSI directly to the virtual machine would actually be a little bit more performant than doing it at the ESX host level. But I imagine that's, that's changed because that's, that's going back some years ago now. 
Yeah, I think the big thing with um, iSCSI now on using the iSCSI from the, the ESXi host perspective is you do have the um, the port binding mechanism to give you multipathing. Mm. So whereas if you were just doing it uh, directly out of the virtual machine, you wouldn't have that um, you know, failover capability or whatever. But now the ability to bind multiple VM kernel ports to the the software iSCSI adapter, you're going to get the multi-pathing. You can use the, the round-robin pack policy uh, and all those good things that come with, um, you know, using the, the, the pluggable storage architecture, you know, the PSA um, features that we have. Yeah, and I used to say to students as well as, well, you can go right into the guest OS and give yourself all the management overhead of having to manage individual iSCSI uh, mm-hmm. clients in different operating systems, potentially, with different update um, uh, cadences. Or you could use the VMware iSCSI um, uh, client, set it up for once, and then present those volumes as you will to any virtual machine you want. So should you want to keep the storage but blow that virtual machine away, then all you would have to do is uh, present that as a... Uh, an RDM to the to the VM uh, as a raw device mapping mm-hmm. and do it that way. And I was trying to make an analogy that it's not unlike, <clears throat> you know, you can do teaming inside a guest operating system if you want to, but that's that's rather dumb when you can do the teaming just on a virtual switch once and then anything that gets plugged into that virtual switch gets teamed. By taking the responsibility for that particular bit of administration out of the guest OS, you make things a little bit more simpler from a kind of administration perspective too, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a valid argument for sure. So it's not always just about raw throughput and raw performance. I often met a lot of consultants who would go, which is the fastest, which is the quickest? And then very often when you looked into it in more detail, they weren't actually driving that much IOPS that it would make any difference which mm. particular uh, iSCSI client they use because it wasn't about the IOPS, it was about the management of how that storage was presented to the op- to the operating system. And I've always wanted to do everything through VMware where possible just to make it simpler because then I can move that configuration from one VM to another without having to actually log into the guest operating system and do configuration there. Indeed, indeed. Yep. Okay, um, so the next... Storage protocol enhancement to talk to you about is this support for 16 gigabit fiber channel HBAs. So we did have a support for 16 gigabit fiber channel HBAs in 5.0, but unfortunately uh, they weren't tested running at 16 gigs, so they had to be set to work at 8 gig. So we finally done that testing now for 5.1, and you can run 16 gigabit fiber channel HBAs at uh, 16 gigabit. Now there is still a caveat; it doesn't. Uh, we don't support 16 gigabit end-to-end. In other words, if you're going to use 16 gigabit HBAs, you can run 16 gig from the HBA to the fiber channel switch, but then there must be 8 gig at the back end. So, I mean, you can still consume full bandwidth if you put in place multiple 8 gig um, connections at the back end, but just be aware that it's not end-to-end. And that, that would be something that's quite common, multiple links out of the fiber channel switch into the array and even two uh, layers worth of switching as well, wouldn't they? So, yeah, you know, it's not a, an unreasonable thing to say that you will have multiple paths because, well, 
that's where the redundancy comes from, doesn't it? When you when you have a fiber channel network, is the redundant switches and the the run redundant SPs to get you into different controllers on the array as well, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, you know, Mike, I think this is just. Um you know, it's possibly just a QA effort on our behalf. As far as I'm aware, we're still, um, you know, 16 gigabit uh, SPs or I/O controllers at the back end, possibly still very new. And I suspect that we will see 16 gigabit end-to-end support before the not, you know, not too long. Yeah, it's making mine. I've got a lab environment which is now getting quite antiquated, and all this talk of eight gig and sixteen gig is mm. making mine two gig fiber seem very <laughs> paltry in comparison. So, indeed, uh, indeed. Uh, but I wonder how many people out there are still on four gig and maybe haven't even got up to eight gig yet. So, oh, I'm know. sure. Yeah, I'm sure the vast majority of fiber channel is still probably um, you know down at the four and even two gig. But I've often thought these sorts of engineering efforts are about future-proofing what it is that we do. So if and when you're ready to bring in your latest and greatest fibre channel, San, we're well ahead in terms of making sure the support is there for whatever it is that you want to plug in. Indeed. Um, so I often see these sorts of efforts where people go, oh, well, we would never, we would never have X and Y. Well, you don't have X and Y now, but... You know, there's a maintenance thing on your array. None of this kit is going to be around forever. At some stage, you're going to wheel in something new, and guess what? You won't be able to get the older uh, kit, and, you know, almost you'll be forced, inverted commas, to go up to a, a new level because yeah. that's that's what's being manufactured. And the good right. thing is is at least the hypervisor or the, the vSphere layer isn't uh, an issue about whether, you, you know, it'll work. That's already been dealt with, you know, many moons ago. Yeah. Yeah. I came across a similar kind of argument um, at a VMUG recently where somebody was saying, uh, oh, this particular technology from VMware isn't compatible with this technology. And I said, well, you know, that's true. Um, and, I, and I asked the guy, you know, what flavor of, uh, of vSphere you're on currently? And he said 4.1. And I said, well, given that you would have to have a whole platform update to get this new product because it's only supported on vSphere 5 and higher, by the time you actually get round to doing your platform update, and I asked him when that would be, and he said in 12 months' time, well, the issue that you're raising will be will be gone. <laughs> so it's almost like a kind of... Um, I, I, I mean, I've, I've seen this in the community, and, oh, this isn't compatible with this thing, isn't compatible with this, and it's like, well, hold your horses. By the time that customers have got this particular set of ducks in the row, which is going mm. to take them an end period of time anyway... Um, unless they're extremely small environment, by the time they get there, this thing will have already been out for six months before they even get close to it. So it's important not to conflate these issues out of proportion because you've got to look at, you know, I've got, so I had some customers who are states that were so large, it would take them 18 months to get from one flavor of, of what we do to another. And that isn't anything to do with how easy it is to deploy the, the new version. It's everything to do with their own internal business processes. And the size of their state is simply that large that even if everybody just dropped what they're doing and just focused on the upgrade, it would take them that period of time. So they're in this constant rolling upgrade process, um, getting from one release to another in, inside their particular business units which has really nothing to do with our cycles of releases, which are obviously much more quicker and much more aggressive because we need to keep up with, you know, the latest and greatest hardware that's coming out. Indeed, indeed. Yes. Okay, um, so 
we'll move on to the next topic. Topic is advanced IO device management and SSD monitoring. So this is something that's brand new, and we refer to it as IODM for short, instead of that big long name there. So IODM is essentially a new bunch of ESX CLI commands in a new namespace that we've introduced for assisting administrators in troubleshooting uh, storage-related issues, be they IO devices or something that's occurring out on the fabric. So it covers um, the ability to look at fiber channel, FCOE, iSCSI, and even SAS protocol statistics. And also there's um, utility, which I'll talk about shortly, to look at smart attributes as well. So it's essentially, uh, as I said, a whole bunch of ESX CLI commands, which will allow you to look at statistics uh, from you know, an ESXi, HPA, um, level or something out on the fabric or something to do with uh, the storage out on the back end. So it's, it's really good um, for just diagnosing and looking at whether counters are increasing uh, you know, consistently. And the other nice thing about it is that from a fiber channel perspective, you can also do resets of your fabrics as well. So previously this was you know, for instance, if something that was participating in the fabric got itself into a state uh, I remember being in support. We had to download special utilities from QLogic and from Emulex. And sometimes we were asking customers to put these utilities onto physical boxes that were participating in the SAN um, because we couldn't install them on the ESX hosts. So it's great now that this functionality is embedded into the ESXi host so that if there is a HBA or a switch port or whatever that's in a a bit of a weird state, we can reset the fabric, get everything to log out, and get everything to log back in again. That's really quite cool. And I'm saying that from a support perspective because I've been in that situation a few times. From a, an SSD monitoring perspective, then, we have a new smart daemon. And I, I do forget what smart stands for. I'm hopeless with acronyms, Mike. I told you this, but it's something for system monitoring and reporting tool or something like that. But that works for me. Okay. <laughs> but it essentially allows you to look at um, various statistics uh, from a particular device that supports this smart format. Now, most of the SSD vendors do have some kind of smarts on their uh, device. So you can pull back information, uh, for instance, wear leveling statistics, which are very important for SSD drives, but also things like temperature and, and that kind of thing. Sure. I've got a little joke about these sorts of acronyms, which you might find funny, is that um, I remember when I was doing a, a VMUG when I was an independent, the EMC guys came in and talked about FAST, which I, I also forget what FAST actually stands for. But if I remember rightly, it's the kind of their auto-tiering where they can move uh, hot blocks out of maybe uh, SAS or SATA-based storage and you know, put them in, up into solid state or, or cache and back down again. And I said to one of the EMC guys, I said, why is it that these never these acronyms never spell out dumb or slow? <laughs> They're always <laughs> smart and fast. And said, yes, indeed. If, if I ever have my own software company, I'm going to develop a whole series of acronyms that um, spell out things you really don't want them to be associated with. Dynamic unmapped management protocol or dumb for another <laughs> phrase but I, I guess you know the point is there it's it's about trying to make the i mean i guess we are moving into increasingly affairs now where ssd in the data center is becoming increasingly 
uh, commonplace and we've got a whole series of new storage vendors uh, as alongside you know the the current you know uh, tier one vendors who have you know either fully solid state or they've gone for solid state at the back and SATA at the back sorry SSD at the front and SATA at the back so that, right. you know it, it is something that is growing and and I think it's growing beyond the um, use our array to solve the disk uh, activity that's generated with virtual desktops, which has been a common kind of, you know, this is how we're going to sell it to, no, 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 S SSD is going to go mainstream for all workloads, you know. Yeah. Um, I must admit, I recently changed my laptop, so I now have an SSD drive in it, and the idea of having to go back to spinning disk is like, uh, it's almost unthinkable that I'd want to do such a thing. Indeed. Um, so, you know, I, I must admit, before I joined VMware, I used to spend a lot of time with these um, particular vendors. And every single one, I would say, well, you know, in, in order for me to really understand your technology, I, I kind of need an array to play around with for a while and uh, to kick the tires off in a desperate, shameless bid to try and get SSD into my lab. But sadly, all of these vendors knew what I was up to, and said, uh, <laughs> I got flatly turned down from every single one. So the, that's that's just the the downside of trying to be an independent and trying to to use your uh, your presence in the community to try and grift free stuff. Indeed, indeed. So just one last point on the SSD monitoring, Mike, is that even we're, so we're shipping a default plugin which looks at some generic smart features, but there might be SSD vendors who have bespoke information that they'd like to surface up. So there is the ability for SSD vendors to, to put their own plugins onto the ESXi host so that we can see specific characteristics of their SSD drives should, um, should they want to do that. Now that's that's interesting because when I reconnect with these various storage vendors um, over the next year, one of the things I'll be doing is asking them about: Do they have an SSD plugin to to what we do? What what are their plans for that? That kind of thing, just like I would have done with um, replication and the SRA or VASA or VI. So it's another area of integration with the the Indeed. storage vendors, which will be interesting to see who who has it, who doesn't have it, who has it on their roadmap, that kind of thing. Perfect. Okay, so let's move on. I think the next topic is just the improvements we've made around storage I.O. control and uh, storage DRS. So firstly, if we look at storage I.O. control, one of the things that we got feedback on right now is that um, there's a default latency threshold of uh, 30 milliseconds. Now, that is not ideal for every storage use case. And so we were relying on customers to set the, uh, the latency threshold for storage I.O. to kick in uh, themselves. So what we've done in 5.1 is we've introduced a new automatic latency threshold computation. So essentially what it does now is it, it uh, profiles the data stores and then determines for itself what the ideal uh, latency threshold should be for that data store um, for triggering storage I.O. control. And so the second thing we have then is we're turning on storage I.O. control in what we call stats-only mode. So there's two benefits of that. The first is that, well, I suppose to clarify, there's no throttling. It's not like storage I.O. control is going to kick in. But, storage I, but when we turn on storage I.O. control, we get a whole bunch of additional uh, statistics that are very useful for you know, troubleshooting, for performance monitoring, and so on. So those statistics will now be available by default. And the second benefit is that 
if that data store is ever moved into a storage DRS data store cluster, there will be a whole bunch of statistics available in advance so that storage uh, DRS can come up to speed about the uh, the profile of that data store uh, much sooner than it could do before. So there isn't like an extended learning period as it profiles the IOPS and profiles the activity. That information will be ready to use the day you decide to enable it. Exactly, exactly. Because that's often been a problem in other technologies I've looked at, especially um, performance monitoring technologies that are meant to baseline your environment and then tell you that you've got something abnormal. Um, the trouble is, is the time it takes for them to actually work out what normal is <laughs> can be Indeed. quite Indeed. a time. And the other problem that sometimes is, is that uh, if your normal is abnormal, then it takes an excessively uh, uh, bad thing to occur before those alarms are are triggered. So I, I guess in, to some respects, we have to be a little bit cautious with this because we have to uh, make sure that the the storage is performing acceptively and maybe by gathering that those statistics over a much longer period even before you actually use the feature then there's less likelihood of getting false positives or things crying wolf unnecessarily yeah well i think um you know storage drs is pretty much geared up for that anyway because the um you know the the profiling period for once of a better word is is pretty um long yeah it's like a 24 hour well not quite 24 hours but it's um you know it's it's over a, a considerable uh, period of time so it's not you're not going to get uh you know requests to do storage of emotions popping up pretty much immediately your data store cluster and so on okay very good so the next part then is storage drs what we kind of refer to as storage DRS 2.0, I think we might have been just using that internally, but it's really the next release of storage DRS. So the kind of things that we are looking at with the, the 5.1 release of uh, vSphere from a storage DRS perspective, primarily is the vCloud Director interoperability. And what that basically means now is that vCloud Director understands storage DRS objects. So when it comes to the initial placement of vApps or it comes uh, or, or the ongoing load balancing, either due to um, performance reasons or space utilization reasons, uh, vCloud Director um, and storage DRS will work hand in hand. So that's a, a really neat feature to have. The second part is the introduction of what we call a data store correlation detector. So, you know, one of the things storage DRS does is try to balance the I.O. load across a, a data store cluster, a bunch of data stores that are grouped together. Now, if you have a number of data stores that are backed by the same set of physical spindles at the back end, and you're trying to make a decision on whether to move this virtual machine from this data store A to data store B, well, there's absolutely no point in moving that virtual machine if all you're going to do is you're going to move the, the latency issue between two data stores. Um, you know, it's the same set of spindles at the back end. You're not going to gain anything for it. So having the data store correlation detector, um, you know, it's it's going to be a, another indicator for storage ERS of whether to go ahead and um, do this storage vMotion operation. And then finally, we have a new metric. It's called VM observed latency. Up until now, with the latency we were measuring was when the I.O. left the ESXi host and came back into the ESXi host. With this new metric, we're going to observe the latency as the I.O. leaves the virtual machine 
and comes back into the virtual machine. So in other words, we're also going to include latency within the VM kernel as part of our um, load balancing mechanism. Can I ask a little question about um, storage DRS and um, um, data store clusters, which isn't sure. directly related to the slide, which is, I mean, I, I, the feature came along uh, after I stopped being an instructor and before I joined VMware, and I think some of my uh, platform knowledge isn't as good as it used to be, mainly because I spent so much time with SRM and, and Vue over the last two years that I've that the platform is just something that's there in the background and I'm not as, you know... I'm making all the excuses, Cormac. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> but uh, um, I've... I, Often when I get given an array or lent an array, uh, when we set it up, we just uh, we take the spindles and we make one aggregate or one red group of that and leave one as a hot spare. Mm. And then I create volumes within that or LUNs within that, mainly so I can choose to have one volume or LUN replicated and one not. Or say this particular volume is for my virtual desktops where this particular volume is for, I don't know, my, my SRM uh, project or whatever. Okay. So, but what I've struggled with is trying to work out um, when it would be appropriate to actually create a data store cluster. Now, I understand that the recommendation is each of the volumes or data stores that make up a data store cluster should have the same sort of features, the same RAID levels, number of symbols, and so on. Similar characteristics. Yeah, you don't want in a single data store cluster wildly different data stores because that kind of makes it more complicated than it needs to be. Indeed, um, but in my situation, that would it would, might lead me to a silly situation where I had one RAID group or one uh, aggregate of disks with a whole series of LUNs. I don't know, two terabytes each, which I then put into one data store cluster. And I'm wondering whether there's really much point in me doing that if I had multiple RAID groups or multiple aggregates, so different volumes resided on different spindles rather than being, you know, basically serviced across the whole of those spindles. I could see. Um, there might be more reason to doing that and then the other thing i was thinking is if i had a larger environment which i don't and i had tiers of these arrays they were all the same sort of red groups number of spindles same speed characteristics whether my data store cluster would be better that it actually took in a number of arrays what i don't know is if whether i'm thinking the right way about the data store cluster or whether i'm approaching it the wrong way is any of what I've said kind of makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. That would be a good thing to do, or am I yeah. barking up the wrong train? No, no, and I think um, you know, for the majority of the customers, when they're presenting uh, storage to ESXi host, they would just create one large storage pool and then just start carving that up as um, you know, as data stores to present to the ESXi hosts. The thing is, when you carve up the um, that storage pool, you don't always create a LUN that's striped across every single spindle. Mm. Now, there are some um, storage arrays that definitely do that. But in my experience, what you're doing is you're carving up a chunk of that storage pool, which maybe traverses some of the spindles, but not all of the spindles that are inside in that pool. And so you do still end up with data stores coming from the same storage pool, which are on a different set of spindles at the back end. Ah. So in that case... um, you know, store data store clusters absolutely um, they can they can work perfectly well. Uh, where there might be, um, I suppose, some I wouldn't say cause for concern, but if you did end up creating LUNs that striped every single spindle 
and that's what you presented as a LUN uh, or a data store, and you ended up with multiple data stores that was striping every single uh, spindle, then in that case, um, you know, storage DRS might make the decision, well, yeah, I'm hitting high latency, but you know what, I, I can't actually move this VM to any place else that's going to reduce that. So um, that's possibly more of a design issue in that if you have uh, if you have your LUN and it's striped across every single spindle and you still have a virtual machine that's generating latency issues for you, uh, you know, you might have to go back and maybe design the backend storage a little bit better. <laughs> think again, I think, is what you want to say. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Indeed. I guess one of the reasons I'm thinking that way is, and this is a very naive way of looking at it, is, you know, this is, there's been this temptation to uh, say a data store cluster is not dissimilar to a ESX cluster. You know, um, and that you can um, distribute your VMs across many different ESX hosts, and vMotion will move the VM to the right ESX host for it to reside on. Right. And there's a temptation, I think, to say, oh, and you can do the same thing with storage, with data store clusters. Is that a massive gross oversimplification? You know, that if I did have four arrays together and I put them in a data store cluster, that wouldn't be a, a bad thing, but. I'm kind of forgetting the way that, you know, it's a different resource. It's storage, it's spindles, it's not CPU and memory, which is I'm dealing with the other. Can we colorate them so easily? Are they too different from each other? So my one concern with using data stores in a data store cluster that are coming from different storage arrays would be the fact that um, you would not be able to do any VAAI offloading. Mm. For your storage vMotion operation, you'd have to rely on the um, the data mover internally on the ESXi hosts to do that operation for you. So it just means that your storage vMotion operations are going to take an awful lot longer to complete than ah. if you were doing it through um, you know through VAAI. Because the VI the VI API works within an array to stop stop it having to pull down the data and push it back up to a that's correct from yeah. by the host, whereas with yeah. the with the kind of copy that happens inside the ESX host, it has to bring it down and then push it up to the other the other volume. Is that right? Uh, that's exactly it. And yeah. so that would be my my major concern because the vast majority of storage arrays, the block storage arrays these days now do support um, uh, maybe not all the primitives, but certainly um, uh, quite a few. I don't. There's very few arrays on the market now. I think that you know. That are prov providing backing for virtualization that don't have some form of VAI, and I just think that it's such a great feature. It's um, you know it's such a performance improvement feature. It would be a shame that you couldn't use it. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I mean, actually, um, I must admit, what the reasoning behind me asking this question is, um, I'm going to kind of rebuild my lab around, environment around uh, using vCloud Director, and obviously, I I want to do a root and branch kind of relook at all my storage and how I'm using it and try and turn my storage into layers of uh, service of storage. You know, I know it's a cliche, gold, silver, bronze, whatever. Mm -hmm. That's that's what I want to do. And I also want to use the data store cluster. I mean, the fact is in my own environment, I've got four different arrays and they're all different from each other. Uh, I've got two Dell arrays and two NetApp arrays. One of them is SAS, one of them is SATA, one of them is SAS, one of them is SATA. Yeah. Um, and therefore, I don't really have 
one array type which I've got an identical of because they're backed by different storage. But what you have taught me is there's still a usage of data store clusters even when you've got volumes or LUNs within the same array. And in fact, the idea I had of, you know, two different arrays in the same data store cluster for the reason of the loss of the the VI functions is a rabbit hole I don't want to go down. So that's, I'm really pleased I asked the question. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> and of course, you can still do it on a per array basis. And, um, you know, using sto uh, storage profiles or profile-driven storage, mm. um, you know, you could still assign tiers to... So, so, so storage profiles will work with data store clusters. It's just that you have to make sure that every data store in the data store cluster does have the same capability. Mm. So they all have to be labeled as gold or they all have to be labeled as silver or they all have to be labeled as bronze. And then when it comes to your uh, virtual machine provisioning, you just choose your profile from the drop-down storage profiles and it will give you compliant and non-compliant data stores including data store clusters. So you can choose a data store cluster to provision your virtual machine based on that profile. Sure. That's pretty nice. Okay, shall we move on? Yep. So I only have one thing left to talk about, and that is the enhancements that we made to Storage vMotion. So before we had the 5.0 or 5.1 release, if we Storage vMotion, a virtual machine that had multiple VMDKs, each of the VMDKs would be moved serially, so one at a time. And when the first one completed, we went back and we did the second one, and when that completed, we did the third one. With 5.1 Storage vMotion, we can migrate up to four VMDKs in parallel from a single virtual machine. And the other thing is that this does not count against your Storage vMotion operations. It's all still considered the one operation. The one caveat, however, and I don't think it's called out quite well on this <laughs> on this slide, the data stores have to be unique. So um, it, it, it's it's not well reflected here. But if we look at the um, the 5.1 storage of emotion process, the um, the first VMDK would have to be on its own unique data store. Um, and it would have to be migrating to a, a unique data store as well. The second VMDK would have to be on a separate data store migrating to a separate data store as well. And the reason being is that we don't want these four parallel disk copy operations impacting uh, um, the data stores quite so much. You can imagine if we were doing four uh, storage vMotion operations off of the same data store, we'd, pretty, you know, we'd be putting a considerable load on us. And um, so that's the reason. We just have to make sure that the VMDKs are on separate data stores. And I apologize that it's not clarified that well on this slide. Well, I guess one thing that's fair to say is normally when customers have three or four different VMDKs in one virtual machine, is that they're deliberately putting them on different data stores so they don't compete for iops or they're wanting to use different features to protect the the data so you know maybe they're using raid 10 on one particular volume but only you know reds red something or even raid zero on another one if it's uh temp data or something like that that doesn't need a whole lot of protection so i wonder how significant that is because one of the um the um recommendations from from way back was um you know, if you had a, a complicated application, would be would be to break up its storage into different VMDKs and potentially put those on different data stores to maximize the throughput. So, I wonder how many customers have four VMDKs, but they store them all on one data store anyway. 
Well, it, it, one of the things with storage DRS, of course, is that we have the affinity, anti-affinity rules for the, the VMs and also the VMDKs. So if you did have um, a virtual machine that was set up with, you know, VMDK anti-affinity rules, which would guarantee that all the VMDKs are kept on separate data stores in the data store cluster, and then you kicked off the storage vMotion at that VM, then you could definitely see uh, a huge benefit there for sure. Okay. Good. All right. So I think that's it for me, Mike. I'll just um, have a concluding slide. And so just really recapping, I suppose, on what we spoke about in uh, part one and part two. And we went from, you know, eight hosts sharing a file from VMFS5 to 32 hosts. Uh, we introduced the new SE sparse disk, which has the ability to reclaim space within the guest OS and also has that new grain size. Number of Microsoft cluster nodes gone up from two to five. From a protocol perspective, we had the boot from software FCOE, jumbo frame support across all our iSCSI adapters, the software adapter, independent and dependent adapter, and then also the 16 gigabit fiber channel support. And then in part two, we talked about the IODM, the IO device management, and also the SSD monitoring, and how that will be really useful for troubleshooting storage issues from the ESXi host. Uh, we talked about vCloud Director, um, the ability to have the, the link clones offloaded to the storage array, and also its integration with storage DRS. Um, we talked about storage I.O. control enhancements as well, as well as the, um, the other storage DRS enhancements, which were, of course, the, uh, the data store correlation detector. It's one of the major features there. And then the new, um, the new latency that we're using now, the VM observed latency. And then finally, this scale up on storage vMotion operations. So I promised, I promised, I promised Carmack uh, a chance to, to uh, pimp and uh, get a shameless <laughs> plug-in. So uh, you've, got your, you've got your minutes going, pimp away. Cheers, Mike. Yeah, so I recently started my own blog. It's uh, simply cormachogan.com. Uh, for the past year and a half or so, I've been blogging on the... Uh, the vSphere storage site. I'm sure many of you may have, may have seen my blogs there. I'll be continuing to do that in parallel with the um, my new blog as well. And of course, if you're on Twitter, you can follow me at VMware Storage. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Um, and let's let's follow up on uh, the previous chat where you said that uh, there may be some stuff that uh, at the moment is a bit in NDA territory. Um, when you're ready to and able to speak about some of the newer stuff that's going to be coming down the pipe, please come back to me. Absolutely. We'll, uh, yeah, there's a lot of very interesting things going on in the storage space at VMware right now. It's an exciting space to be in. And um, as soon as we can talk more about it, I'd be delighted to come back. Great. Thanks a lot, then. Not a bother. Take care, Mike.